The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, we're in India. I don't know exactly what they're called. Uh, the name is escaping me. I think it's, is it Gulab Jamun or something like that? She never told me. She just stuck the plate in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> For that and more dishes I can't remember the name of, download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey, everybody, it's, it's the winemakers. We're here. Oh, that Sam and Bart and Ray Kaufman. Good morning, everybody. How's how's your Tuesday? Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? Does it matter? <laughs> is everything shaping up the way you thought it would, Ray? In regards to? <laughs> For a Wednesday. Yeah, it's uh, the same as Tuesday <laughs> and pretty much the same as Thursday will be. So, so you, Ray, before you we are... Feeling also, right? Groundhog right. Day, every day is the same? Except for variations, but it's more or less similar. Good air. There you go. Uh, go ahead. Are, are, Ray, are you in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere as we speak to you? Oh, I, I'm pretty much in Sonoma most of the time. Okay. I've been going down to like uh, Argentina for over 20 years. And so like um, everything is pretty organized. There's a family who lives on the vineyard. Um, so there's really no need for me to be down there year round. Okay. Well, Bart, I just jumped right into where we were in the world um, because I have I have um, Argentine, Argentinian Malbec, right? Dead air <laughs> uh, in my glass. Um, so, Bart, maybe you should do a little uh, our little intro. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> thanks, Sam. Um, <laughs> Uh, so Ray, Ray Kaufman, um, uh, lived here in Sonoma Valley. Um, as I understand from your bio and talking to our mutual friend, Mark Stupich, um, you started working at Kenwood, um, in the early seven or the, I'm sorry, the late seventies, maybe the early eighties. Yeah. Um, somewhere in that period. Yeah. But before that you had worked at a number of other wineries. Um, as you reference um, on bottling lines and and could you maybe kind of start at the beginning from there and and I guess really you know where did you grow up and how did you find yourself in Sonoma? Well I actually uh, grew up in the Hollywood area and attended Hollywood High School and went to school in um, Northridge at the uh, State College there and then uh, after school I decided to um, take a trip around the world and was expecting to come back in about three months. And I ended up uh, staying in Asia for seven years. <laughs> and uh, and what, what made you stay so long, right? Um, I, I guess it was, interest, it was interesting. And um, um, I was able to, uh, in Japan, uh, earn money teaching English. And then, um, 
as I started uh, hitchhiking around Asia, I met a person in Singapore that was building a sailboat. And, uh, and he's looking for people to, um, to help on the project, but he had no money. And so I didn't have a, a particularly uh, mapped out plan. So I just thought I'd give it a try. And I really enjoyed the process of building the boat. I'd never sailed before in my life. And so that was um, something that really wasn't in, in, um, in a goal I had or an interest I had. But I just liked uh, living on the boat and working on it. And so it was a ferro-cement uh, schooner rig. And when I got there, just the hull was there. And uh, just started uh, working on it. And then um, um, we got kicked out of Singapore um, because of visas and things. So say, uh, they are strict, aren't they? They are, especially in those days. You, uh, you didn't want to mess with them. But so they gave us like uh, two weeks to uh, get the boat in shape and motor on out. So we uh, motored out um, all the way to, uh, to Thailand to uh, a boatyard that was run by a, um, uh, an ex-contractor um, from Vietnam. And so we lived on a canal and um, had Thai carpenters. We did everything by hand, um, the, the masts and everything and the... And the um, a lot of the woodwork was teak, and there was a teak uh, mill down down the river. So we just used to row down and get the wood we needed, and row back. And that process took over a year uh, to finish the boat. And um, so I was living in Thailand. I lived in Singapore. I lived in Japan uh, during that time period. And then um, when the boat was ready, we you know we learned how to navigate using a compass back in those days the uh the sonar systems hadn't quite kicked in and we had an old uh uh the the bible in those days was Babbage's navigating book and that was a it was like a a road map to every corner in the in on, on the ocean you kind of knew where you were going just by reading Babbage's and then with our compass and handheld and all that, we just took off. And so to make a long story short, I, was, I sailed the uh, South China Sea and the South Pacific for about uh, two and a half, three years. Geez, for somebody who hadn't sailed before, you really fell right into it, didn't you? Jumped into that one. Yeah, I learned. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's so cool that they were processing and growing the teak right where you were and you just went down the river to get it that's cool yeah we had thai thai carpenters who come to work every day and uh, and they were pretty much using hand tools and so even when we uh, put the mast up it was all by rope and pulley kind so, you guys were doing it on your own yeah so that was that was a interesting experience and then after being gone for seven years, um, I just uh, came back and started visiting different people I knew from school who were living in various places. And uh, 
a good friend of mine, Lance Cutler, was uh, here in, uh, in Sonoma, and I just uh, uh, stopped by to visit him and said, gee, I like this place. I think I'm going to move here. And uh, so, so, so a little background for the people out there. Um, and, and I didn't know this, Ray. I didn't know you knew Lance. Um, Lance Cutler was, um, I, I believe he was the, the original winemaker at Gunlock Bunchu when the Bunchus brought back winemaking, right? So they were grape growers for, um, you know, going back to the beginning, um, but, but got away from winemaking over prohibition. And when Jim Bunchu started the winemaking back at the ranch in the um, late 60s, early 70s, I, I believe it was Lance that was the winemaker. Well, I, I, it was his brother-in-law, John Merritt. And John was, Merritt, that's right. Was, was yeah. the first winemaker. And Barney Fernandez, his brother-in-law, yes. was taking care of the vineyards at that time. And then, uh, and then when John left, uh, Lance took over from him. Okay. He worked under John for two okay. or three harvests, something like that. But you knew, you knew um, Lance from, from back in... Um, Hollywood or from Southern California? No, we went to we went to uh, college together. Oh, college. Okay. And that that's where we met, and we we just kind of hit it off, and even our it turned out our families had a connection way back that uh, um, we discovered it during our our friendship. But um, yeah, so it was just by happenstance that I ended up in Sonoma, and uh, and. Uh, you know, because um, I had a teaching background, I, I got a, a job at the uh, state hospital and uh, didn't really um, decided that wasn't a long-term place for me. And I, uh, through Lance, met, uh, started working on different bottling lines and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and uh so what bottling lines were those? I, I always oh. love to I always love to talk about the you know the history of Sonoma Valley and um, uh, because we wouldn't be anywhere without it. And um, I mean, well, it'd be world. like Hacienda, Gunlock Bunchu, and uh, you know, at, th at that time there were maybe five six wineries in the valley. Right, and Hacienda is what is now Bartholomew Park. Right, and. Um, um, and unfortunately, Hacienda has been, like so many brands, have been stripped of the quality wines that they were making back in then. And now it is just a, a label that gets bottled here. But we won't dwell on, on that. Right, right. So, so then you started, you worked in the cellar at Kenwood. Right. And, and, and I would say, you know, I would always say that when I worked at Kenwood, those were the glory days. But all the guys that you know, taught me what I know and that I worked with, they all told me that the glory days um, ended when I started. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were there certainly during that time. And, and again, there weren't a lot of wineries um, and it was a real small community, tight community, right? Yeah, everybody knew everybody. And uh, it was a, a period of great uh, sharing. Every, everybody came from such diverse backgrounds and uh, uh, sort of came together and um, everyone just um, really, really were excited and interested in what they were doing. And everyone was learning from each other and there was so much going on at that time. I mean, it was, um, 
Uh, it was still back in the day of the California sprawl in the vineyards. Yep. And, uh, and the wine, I mean, used to do like uh, things that people would scratch their head over today, but used to put CO2 in red wines every Friday afternoon to make sure they were protected from oxygen. Yep. <laughs> and uh, all of these, you know, Neanderthal kind of uh, concepts that came from the University of Davis. And so you, you, um, you did this and you followed the, uh, uh, the chemistry of what a great Bordeaux was because wines were made by the numbers, not by, um, um, not by really uh, understanding tradition and history and all of that. And, 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 and I think that's, that's, really, that's really cool and what a, a nice statement is that <clears throat> that is what it was. it was. It was a learning process. They were learning from, you know, what, what data there was and what, you know, their inspirations were. And, and that was the Bordeaux model, really, you know. Um, and that explains a lot of, you know, why in the, you know, late 70s and all through the 80s, wines were... 12 and a half to 13 percent was a high alcohol wine and they had they had good acid and structure and and they did take a while to open up and and kind of a commentary on how things have changed and maybe are changing back that way yeah well but it was you know it it was back then most of it was saint george rootstock um and uh, they were all the vines were overgrown so the only, the, and it was very similar to Bordeaux in that way. The only time you'd have a good vintage was when it was a hot year because in, in, the, in a typical year, you know, what we know about, about phenolics and, and uh, you know, ripening and all of that um, couldn't happen in a, in a typical year. And, and then you and had, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. And that's because of how much fruit was hanging on those vines, right? Is that, is that what you're saying? That just well, the, also the vines the were shade. overgrown and overcropped? Yeah, and uh, they were in the shade. I mean, the, right. the guy who's probably made a big impression at the time was uh, uh, Richard Smart from Australia, yep. who was the first guy who started talking about canopies and uh, opening them up. And then you had um, um, the change in rootstocks. Part of that was brought on by phylloxera which speeded up the process, but uh, it got rid of uh, uh, a lot of vineyards um, that were... Um, All that planted, AXR. Planted. Yeah, on AXR, and they were planted with, um, uh, with rootstock that weren't appropriate for the varietal. I mean, so much was happening at that time period uh, that it was pretty exciting uh, to just... Um, go through the processes. I mean, Kenwood, where I started, had, on the bottom floor, had about uh, five, six, maybe more redwood tanks from the old days. And you used to put your head in them, shimmy your body in, and then you were greeted by uh, tartrates that were about a foot, <laughs> a foot deep in the tank. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then the exciting time was, uh, oh, look, we're getting some stainless steel tanks. Wow. <laughs> You and know, so it's you interesting. Had, yeah, so you had all these, uh, you know, old traditional things 
modern things coming in and then unlearning, you know, in that whole, the whole process of unlearning the, what I call the fear of winemaking. You know, the people were afraid of, uh, of, um, of, of um, something going wrong with the wine as opposed to letting the wine uh, express itself and show itself. Ray, it's interesting. I, you made a comment about the art of handling the canopy and being aware of it just kind of came into vogue. Quite frankly, I had assumed it was always in vogue and everybody just knew it. So it's interesting. You were there when these things were happening. How long did you work at Kenwood in front of Bart? No, about, about five years. A and lot then, was going on then. Yeah. It's really cool to talk about those changes. And, uh, and then it sort of, uh, then I went, um, I worked uh, a harvest, a couple of harvests at Bouchain. Got it, you know, and, and then, back then they were still fermenting in cement. And, uh, but that was interesting working with a, a different, uh, uh, different varietals than I was used to. And then after that, um, Patrick up at uh, Laurel Glen was uh, needed someone part-time. And that's all I wanted to do part-time because I was working on a, a export wine project that I had. And so I started working up at Laurel Glen and that's um, was um, when a lot of things really uh, opened up for me because it was, um, it was a totally different approach. I mean, similar to what I was picking up at Bouchain, but um, compared to what I picked, learned at Kenwood, what Patrick was doing was uh, very traditional and, uh, and was um, less um, concerned with, um, with what Davis was doing and more concerned with how they did things in Bordeaux. And so just the contrast of the two was really interesting. And also during that time period was, I would say, um, when the real revolution hit, when you had um, um, people from Davis, like uh, Ramey or and people like that, starting to question what they learned at Davis and starting to understand what are phenolics? How do you get phenolics? What's the appropriate place to plant a particular varietal? Um, the new clones were coming out. So it was um, um, a historic period. And it was in the 80s, all that work that was going on, all that um, understanding of um, what ripeness is, uh, resulted in, you know, uh, what was the first probably golden age of California wine in the 90s. That's when California wine started to get recognition. Yeah. And uh, that's when, um, you know, uh, despite what you know, people can say a lot of things about Parker, and a lot of them are true, but he really was the person who put uh, quality California wine uh, in front of um, collectors and consumers who were of buying the, uh, the great wines of the world. And he had a line in one of his um, 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 
newsletters that was something like, if you don't have a, one of these uh, you know, uh, outstanding California wines in your cellar, your cellar isn't complete. Something like that. I don't remember the exact, but that was the inference that he made. And that's when people started paying attention uh, to California wine. And it was a really good timing because um, in Bordeaux, the one, they weren't paying attention to what they were doing at that time. And they were just turning out wines in the same old way. A lot of them had bacterial issues. And that was something we were aware of here. So, you know, uh, wine would taste a certain way. Uh, and they would say, oh, it's good at terroir. That's our terroir. When in fact, it could be Brett or something. So, um, and so we were, we were like making- Natural wine movement. <laughs> well, yeah, back in the day. Right, but in comparison to now is, you know, there are things that are cellar defects in, in a natural wine that, um, that they'll just say, oh no, it's just part of, um, it, it's part of- It's good at terroir. Yeah, it's yeah terroir. exactly. The old term comes back. <laughs> And, but also, you know, then the thing that made it really work was um, the first wines were here were like 15 bucks, you know, uh, Laurel Glen um, that, that was $15, another one's $20. And so you could take the wines yeah. sh shown to people in a brown bag and they go, wow. Uh, Sam, you're on. You're bleeding through. Oh. <laughs> I turned the video off and I didn't turn the audio off. Exactly. Smart. Uh, well, we were trying to, you know, Brian was trying to log in, um, but he's, uh, the internet here, two people back to back trying to be on the internet isn't working. So um, he's going to try and move. That's what's going on behind the scenes, <laughs> behind the curtain. So, so Ray, so, um, uh, after spending, it, was it when you were working with Patrick up at Laurel Glen that um, uh, Argentina started to come into um, play? And how did that happen? Well, um, al uh, along the way. Um, you know, Actually, you know what? I'm going to stop you real quick. Okay. Just because we, we have all opened this wine. Um, I, it, uh, Brian and, and um, Sam have the old vine. Um, I and John have the 2019. And I just have to say the 2019, the aromatics are like intoxicating. It's, I've got a 17. Oh, you have a 17. Okay. Um, so the 19. But, but have, there were two. Okay. You got the 17. Got it. Okay. And so the 19 that I have, the aromatics are just beautiful. I mean, just that classic blueberry, um, really, really pretty. Um, a bit of a floral influence and yeah yeah well that's what that's the the goal that i have um is well there's um a lot of different um terroir in argentina and uh and so uh with the vineyard that um i purchased i i it doesn't have a lot of rocks in it but it's got very good drainage so below the soil it it drains well, but it's not a, a super rocky site. So when I looked at the fruit we were getting from there, I, you know, I felt that the best thing to do was to make a, um, let's say, we're working more with a Merlot than a Cabernet, working more with uh, 
elegance as opposed to power. So the, those are the, uh, um, what I try to um, um, put in the wine. So I want it to be spicy because Malbec has some spice, not a lot, but some. And then, yeah, the fresh blueberry character is another aspect I want to capture. And then the freshness um, as well. And... Uh, and it, it, they show that uh, some decent ageability as well. And it's certainly not as long lived as a cat can be. The skins on Malbec in Ardenera are thin, generally, unless depending on the site. So the, the skins in my vineyard are not thick. So again, um, the tannin content is, is uh, um, not, um, not super aggressive. So, and so I, I don't want to try to um, uh, make a, a, a very tannic wine because then it'd be over extracted and it lose its balance. Am I, am I wrong to think of Malbec as a thick skinned grape here? I mean, I don't have a ton of experience with it, um, but it, it's not. It's, it's not it a won't tannic be, filter. It, it won't be like a, like a cab. But uh, again, it's, it's, it's uh, site specific, but always cab, I think it's generally got thick skins. Yeah. And Malbec would be more dependent on the site. It, it's interesting. I mean, my, my experience with Malbec has been at, at Benziger and Imagery. We used to get some from Lake County, mm -hmm. um, from Ron Bartolucci up there. And, and that tended to be I think a more powerful um, one, you would get some that blueberry and spice, but mainly on cooler years, but it's hard in Lake County to have cooler years. Right. Uh, and then here um, in the Valley from um, the Lasseter's property, um, which is, you know, kind of a, a cool warm site, um, but definitely thin skinned and, um, and, and, and more, um, more of an elegant um, showing of it. Right, but in, in Argentina, they got some very rocky sites, and then with uh, low yields, the, the skins will get thicker, and you get a, a totally different character than what I'm making. And, and what is the, um, so, so we can get back to like how you ended up in Argentina, but in, in general, what is the weather patterns where your vineyard is um, in comparison to here in Sonoma? No, they're, they're pretty similar. Um, um, it, it, uh, um, the highs are similar to here and the lows, I mean, during the growing season are, are pretty similar. Um, it's, uh, a little more of a desert climate and, and you don't have the influence of the, of the ocean, but you've got the uh, effect of the Andes that you're surrounded by. And so that, uh, that'll, um, cool things off, but it can get, uh, you know, it'll be in the uh, 90s during, uh, uh, during summer, but the evenings are always cool, generally speaking. The, uh, the, the main problem from a production point of view is, is hail. And uh, that can happen anytime. And so... Um, so in about a 10 year period, you need to be prepared to lose your crop or a good percentage of your crop um, 
two to three times in a 10 year period. Hey, Ray, so, could, you, could you tell everybody your website? So that way when they're listening, they can get on. I'd, I'd love for them to be able to look at these pictures of the vineyard with the Andes in the background and um, help so they really understand what we're talking about here. It's uh, adelantewine.com. So that- Those are beautiful shots. Yeah. Part. They are stunning, really. So that's Adelante, A-D-E-L-A-N-T-E-W-I-N-E.com. Right. Go ahead, Ray. Sorry about that. Yeah, no. So, um, so that, you know, it's, that's, that's the weather. It's not generally extreme, but I guess in a way it'd be um, somewhat closer to Mendocino than to here because Mendocino has the cold, the cool nights and the hotter days. And so you're, you're getting uh, a larger differential than you would necessarily here in Sonoma, which is Sonoma is so diverse. You, you say the word Sonoma and it, it almost means nothing. <laughs> right, right. And, and is the winery on the property or how does it work down there? Is it a co-op? Um, I've, I try to make the wine at different wineries. And, uh, and so uh, I've uh, kind of bounced around. Argentina uh, doesn't have uh, a structure like we have here of going somewhere and they make wine for you. So um, I've uh, met people and tried to work with them. And um, the uh, mentality in Argentina is not the same as here. And they don't have the um, uh, the follow through and the follow up that one is used to here. So I've uh, uh, worked at different places trying to find a place where I feel comfortable at, and I think I finally finally found it. Ray, what is this area that you're talking about on the website, La Consulta? Well, it's it's one of the regions of Mendoza. And Mendoza has uh, various um, uh, appellations like here. And La Consulta is one of the cooler regions of Mendoza. Um, and uh, it's uh, considered to be one of the uh, more quality areas in the Mendoza region. What is it like living there and working there? Um, lit, uh, lit, living there is fun. Argentina, um, I, you know, uh, I, to me, I guess the phrase that encapsulated, it's like being in Italy without the Italians. <laughs> they, uh, they, 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 uh, okay. they uh, um, love eating. Wine is everywhere. The food is, is more European than, than South American uh, or Latin. I mean, the basic, besides the steak and the beef, which is wonderful, um, but they eat, you know, rabbit and pork and, you know, uh, all the meat groups you can think of, they do really well. And then the Italian part of it, there's pastas and, and all, all, all the Mediterranean type uh, foods associated with Italy is every day there. And so you're really like living in, in Europe as opposed to living in a, 
in a Latin country. But this looks really far inland. Um, you're on the other side of a big mountain range. Um, right. On the, the interior, other side. Right? Yeah, the other side is Chile. Bingo. There you go. It's just a huge area that I have no idea what it's like at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very uh, rural, very rustic. Um, it's not, um, you know, the agricultural areas are not sophisticated at all. Um, you've got um, um, uh, large families in some cases, um, and they, they, um, they work the vineyards. And uh, it's a real contrast, you know, from the uh, ownership class to the working class. And the working class is, is um, almost, um, and I don't use the word negatively, but it's um, to kind of give a pig, it's almost like a peasant class of people. They're educated, but, but at a certain level, and they live very basically. Everybody um, has their own gardens uh, that they depend on for food. Um, the government, uh, keeps the, uh, the price of meat very inexpensive. That allows uh, people to, to live on a lower salary. It's basically subsidized though by the government. So you've got um, you know, a contrast, a huge contrast, economic contrast between the people working the vineyards and the people who own the vineyards. And that, uh, to a large extent, and then how the government sets things up um, uh, uh, makes it possible for the everyday person to live inexpensively. Interesting. So it's, uh, it's been a learning experience and you have to uh, um, learn to deal with uh, a certain amount of inefficiency and a certain amount of laid backness Otherwise, you know, it, you, if, you, uh, if you let it get to you, you're, you're done. <laughs> you won't survive. So it kind of sounds like it's like being on island time, maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but they're, you know, they're extremely competent. It's just the sense of when to do things. And even like, I think a good example is during harvest, the middle of harvest is Easter. So, and... Uh, right. The, everything stops for three, four days. It could be, it doesn't matter. You need to pick, forget about it. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. It's Easter. Is there, so, any, is there anywhere in California around this area that would be similar to that? Or in, is it just two third world? About, you mean about it, working? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> No, you and it's just one of the things that you you know need to work around. But it's just, I think the uh, the idea of uh, exactness and doing things at a when a prescribed period of time doesn't quite translate. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, around around here, we always refer to. You know, harvest, it's, it's, 
what needs to be done is the only thing that matters, right? You know, we used to right. that. It, so in my family, uh, they're in the dairy industry, and we used to always say that every day is Tuesday because if it was, you know, the cows have to be milked on Christmas and they have to be milked on Christmas Eve. And, you know, so every day is like Tuesday. And I used to always say during harvest to interns that um, you have to have the same attitude as every day is Tuesday because you're not getting a day off. And right. you have a day off before because what the wine needs is, you know, is the most important thing for now. Um, and, and so, yeah, it would be hard to wrap your mind around with the exception of maybe a power outage or um, a, a fire, a wildfire, um, just walking away from the winery for four days or three days. Yeah, no, it's, and Sundays are days off. You know, in the middle of all this, you know, the, uh, there's unions and associations and the workers are in unions and in associations. And these are part of the things that, that, they, um, that they just get it's hard to get people to pick on a Sunday. What about like punch downs in the winery or well, that, Easter, the four days Easter, if you want to make sure that your fermentation isn't going haywire, you better be in there doing it yourself. Well, the, the wine, the winery workers are separate from the vineyard workers. Uh, and so um, people who work in the wineries, they um, schedule those things to be done, but they just come in to do a specific task. They're not going to be really working. They're not receiving grapes on those days. It, you know, it'd be like just coming in and doing a punch over and making and checking the fermentations. And then when that's done, they're out of there. What always turned out to be your favorite wine from Argentina? Oh, mine? Yeah, yours. Personal favorite. Oh, um, well, you know, I, I, I like Malbec. <laughs> That's what I think they do the best. Also, uh, they have really good uh, Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc. The cabs are, to me, don't really um, speak to me. But uh, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, they're... They, they do really well there. Cap Franc, because it's, it's a warmer climate and that helps it get ripe. And for some, re for some reason, the soils seem to um, uh, work well with that varietal as well. Well, they, they do a lot of uh, hardy reds down there, don't they? They like that. Well, they, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, um, well, I mean, let's a lot of, I would say rustic, you know, if you, depending on the class of wine, they're rustic or they're uh, overripe. And uh, a lot of the wines are just overextracted and overripe because um, um, they um, don't, they, you don't find any wines from around the world there uh, because of, they're so expensive and people can't afford them. So they don't get a chance to taste other wines. And so they just follow trends within the country. So Michelle Roland has had a project there for decades. And uh, Paul Hobbs was influential. Uh, so for the longest time, 
they were um, making wines to imitate that particular style. So that's where you got the very ripe, very hearty, very big Malbecs. Um, and because the temperature is warm, they could do it. They could just leave them sit on the vines, you know, till they um, got that style of wine. Well, and um, then, and then the, the wines that we actually see here in California are mainly the, the large mass produced wines, right? I mean, um, a, a, a lot of the, the finer wines or more high end wines, um, they're not that readily exported. Is that correct? Right, because uh, people wouldn't pay the money for them that they do inside Argentina. Right. You know, they, they, a lot of the more expensive wines are sort of like um, um, everyone's got to have one because their neighbor has one. Just right. for, your, for your pride, for your image, personal image, your pride. So, but, um, um, but these days there's a big change going on there and the wines are becoming much more interesting um, there's a few people making really um, interesting wines there these days. And they've also gone to the extreme of making, same like here, a lot of, um, you know, um, um, quote unquote, fresh underripe wines and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and the Psalms like that sort of thing. So um, they have a, a um, a small market for them, but um, again, it's uh, it's following trends. That's a big thing there. Very few people are doing individualistic wines, but that's starting to change. And I think this is a a, a period of real growth within Argentina, where people are getting more familiar with uh, their vineyards, the soils they have, and they're uh, trying to work out individual expressions for what they have instead of following uh, a trend. I, I think I saw today that um, an Argentinian Malbec uh, made number eight in the spectators uh, top 100. Um, and I would, I, I don't remember which one it is. I'll have to look it up. Was it, was it Matervini by chance? Uh, we're going to look it up here and, and we'll okay. see. I was just looking at that this morning. Uh, Who's looking? Brian's Who's uh, uh, and and that's I mean that's that's a nice nod to you know the the country and 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 whatnot uh, you know I mean good for, good for them um, yeah no no they uh, the knowledge is there just I don't think the um, uh, the opportunity to uh, have a wide um, ex experience. With, with wines and different styles so that they could uh, um, have more confidence in their individual expression. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and Ray, can you talk a little bit about the, the old vine uh, Malbec and, and you know, what sets that aside and um, talk about that a little bit also, please. Well, are you referring to the blue label or just in general? Uh, that was the blue label that you gave us, I believe, yeah. yes. That, that's um, that's a, a divided the vineyard into north, south, and center uh, in terms of, um, of, of looking at it and seeing how the different sections um, 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 will um, 
will just uh, uh, evolve and develop in the vineyard. And central, central that um, ripens the earliest and the grapes are the smallest. And so I wanted to do just a separate bottling of that. And so, uh, and, and uh, the idea of it was to commemorate the uh, person who planted the vineyard. We actually bought the vineyard from the family that originally planted it. I mean, and, now, now as I look at the other, the 2019, I mean, this comes from 70 year old vines. So I, <laughs> I guess I'm, I, I, I guess I didn't realize that everything is, it appears to be pretty old. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what are the, it, is, is the whole vineyard old vine? Yeah, the whole, the whole vineyard. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. So, yeah, and so we've, um, when we first bought it, so it was, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, you can talk about buying, what's the history of the, the property, though? It looked, I was reading on the website a little bit, it's, it was original, just kind of like the old vines in Sonoma Valley, it was, it was planted by Italian immigrants? Yep, exactly. Is uh, uh, Don Eugenio came over uh, from, uh, from Italy. He, he, he worked a lot of jobs and, uh, you know, worked real hard and saved his money and bought the plot of, this plot of land. And then uh, in his spare time, um, planted the vineyard. And then um, during Harvard, he was selling it to the co-op. And, uh, and so uh, uh, the family was experiencing uh, economic difficulties. The, um, um, the different parts of the family weren't taking care of the vineyard. Um, it's sort of like um, just um, unattended, basically. So um, the reason that um, um, we came up with the name Adelante is because um, it means going forward. And so we looked at ourselves as um, buying it from the first generation, improving it, uh, reviving it. And then um, uh, whenever we uh, pass the vineyard on, it will be Proved. It's going forward. So it's keeping um, the work that Don Eugenio first did, keeping it alive and keeping the land and the uh, history of it on a continuum. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, the thing that I love about that name also, and I don't know if this is your guys' experience in, in picking, but when we pick grapes, we have a trailer with two bins on it, you know, two macro bins. And as the crew comes up with a, you know, with their picking pan full of grapes, we either send it to a Bajo or Adelante to the, to the back trailer or the front trailer as you try to like keep things right balanced. And it's, and the way that it's written on the label, and we'll post a picture, I'll post some pictures on Instagram. Um, it has that sort of uh, energy of, of a, of a, day picking grapes and we're you know it's 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 not adelante it's adelante it's it's big it's it's got that energy of uh you know being out there um so i, I appreciate that piece of it too yeah yeah no it's uh, uh you know it just it fit what we were doing mm -hmm. and uh and wanted to do and so uh to act, i mean on the website you can actually see pictures of the vineyard when we first bought it you know scraggly old vines unattended 
uh, and now you can see the way it looks today. So it's definitely uh, uh, feel good about that. Boy, yeah, I'm looking at that picture now. Boy, it really does look a lot different, doesn't it? Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, and, and we're in the process of uh, converting it over to organic, to an organic vineyard. And uh, but because it's an old vineyard, it takes time to um, to uh, uh, nourish it back. You know, it, the vines are not the healthiest, so you got you got to get them really healthy um, before the conversion is complete. That's what was in a sort of neglected vineyard, and I imagine that you're like, you know, fighting back generations of of noxious weeds and um, sort of weaning the whole vineyard over is a, is an interesting process. Exactly, exactly. But uh, and you know, and, and there's the uh, I wish I had more money, I could do it faster. But there is the financial <laughs> constraint of a. How, what, how much you can do in a given, in a given year. Is it, um, is it easy to do business in Argentina? No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, there's a, uh, because um, of the um, economic instability that's sort of ingrained in the system, um, you can't trust, nobody trusts anybody. And, uh, you know, uh, you know um, uh, 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 this is when I, when I was uh, um, there for Patrick and we were buying from different vineyards and you, you could go to a guy and say, okay, everything is fine. We'll be here tomorrow. We'll be here in two days and pick. And this actually happened and you, you go there two days ready to pick and the vineyard's been picked. And you go, what happened? We had a deal. He goes, well, this guy came over and uh, he offered me more money. So, so you know, he picks. And, <laughs> and he was going to pick a day sooner. Yeah, and then he said, hey, you want to have a beer? <laughs> it's not like it's like, oh, this is really something terrible. <laughs> hey, you know, it just happened. Let's have a beer. Maybe next year. <laughs> So these are the things that um, you got to work out over time and you figure out who, who you're going to work with and how you're going to work with them. And, and it, but it's, uh, it's just ingrained in the system because um, uh, there's just um, people are unable to trust each other because they're under such economic um, um, stress and strain that uh, they can't. So, that, so how does he know I'm going to show up in two days? Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. This guy showed up, gave me the money. Okay. So there's this, uh, um, there's this uh, uh, period where you just have to be there long enough and get to know people where um, you can establish um, a working relationship. And, and as, as for converting the vineyard to organic, and I want to kind of get back to that a little bit, because, um, you know, if you do that in Sonoma, you have, there's, you know, now, um, there is sort of a, a culture of that. There's, 
there's other people who are doing it. There's, there's resources, there's, there's a knowledge base. Um, is that something that's happening with any sort of like, you know, they follow, if you say they follow trends down there is, is organic farming trending in, in Mendoza or are there, is that starting to happen a little bit or, or are you kind of an outlier? It's not unusual anymore. Okay. Um, and there, there's resources there to do it, but it's, it's uh, not a big movement, but it, it's, it exists yeah. and people are doing it. Well, that's and the knowledge, they, the knowledge there is, they have all the knowledge and, and they've got, um, you know, uh, universities that follow all this. They've got um, analogical, um, societies, they, the structure is there, just the uh, money and the, um, the benefits. You know, here there's a, there's, there's a societal benefit or a personal uh, belief system you have to do these things. There, the economic straps people that only the, the top tier like Katana and the people with money can actually afford to be organic. And here there's enough wealth where people can decide to be organic and have the funds to be organic. Right. It's interesting. An emerging, truly an emerging wine region, although has a hundred year history of grape growing. It's a, it's an interesting dichotomy. I mean, it is, They've been growing grapes in Mendoza as long as they've been growing grapes in Sonoma. Um, Exactly. But uh, there's just not the the wealth to sustain. Um, Progress is going to happen quickly, like here. I mean, what's happened here is just incredible. In, in, um, In the last 25 years, um, on so many levels, I mean, food, uh, vineyards, um, um, the knowledge is exponentially increased. You've got, you know, you've got satellites giving you information now. Um, you have all of these things that have just happened in the last 25 years, and if you don't have the money um, to, t- to use that technology, doesn't exist. Does, would you say that the wine business in Chile is equal to, like where it is in its maturity to Argentina or is Argentina either ahead or behind Chile? Um, well, I think they're, well, they're, they're totally different models. Okay. Um, in Chile, they're large farms with sort of the landed gentry. So they have, um, they're much more modern. Their culture is much different. You can um, much easier do business in Chile. Argentina is a bunch of anarchists. Okay. You know, it's, it's small farms. There's very few big farms. And in Chile, you've got uh, flat valleys where you can do large pieces of land. In, in, um, in Mendoza, because of the Andes and because of the increasing altitude and 
it's hard to get really big chunks of land. And then you also have, have water rights. And so um, it's much more difficult to have a, a centralized um, system, whereas Chile is much more centralized. So you can um, modernize much easier and much quicker. They don't have near the number of wineries that you do in, in Argentina. Um, again, because of the, the culture. I would, you know, if you want to compare the two, um, um, Chile is more like Germany. <laughs> they're organized. They're, um, uh, you sit down and you make a deal with somebody, it's a deal. And then uh, you go to, to uh, Argentina and it's, it's a totally different culture. Yeah, interesting. So Ray, tell me this, how do people um, get your wines? Are, are you distributed through here in the United States? Um, uh, uh, is, it, is it through your website? What's, what's the best way and, and how do people find out about these things? Uh, well, right now, um, about uh, uh, four or five months ago, Chambers and Chambers uh, took on Adelante. So um, once uh, COVID is, is over, I think, um, the wine will be a little more readily available. Now it's, uh, they're doing a, a, a limited job, but it's understandable so. So looking forward to um, having much wider distribution. Um, I don't sell direct uh, on the website or anything. Okay. Um, and then I have um, um, one of the original I, uh, I concepts um, of what we're doing is I wanted to be similar to um, a European kind of a, a setup where you make, uh, you've got a small plot of land, you make a, a reasonably priced wine, and uh, it's a wine that um, um, has a more of an, uh, let's say, uh, international um, focus. So uh, I wanted the wine to be, uh, to also be able to be sold internationally. I just wasn't, didn't want to focus on a wine just for, uh, to sell in the United States. I feel that uh, um, um, I like wine from all over the world. I like um, uh, the, um, I like less ripeness than you generally find in, in the market today. And so, um, the wine is, uh, I've got distribution in Holland, Belgium, and Germany. Okay. Um, and uh, in the States, it's in New York, Florida, um, Iowa, Wisconsin, and uh, um, a couple other places. Okay. Well, we have some listeners in those places, so, um, so that's, that's good. That's good. And, uh, and Chambers and Chambers... Uh, Hopefully we'll we'll start rocking and rolling with it here in spring of 2021, right? Right, right. I think we'll all be uh, I'll be ready for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, this has been great. Um, anyone else have any more questions for Ray? Brian? No, I I, I love the wine. I'm not you know not a Malbec guy. Per, per se, uh, it's not something that I 
think of reaching for very often, but um, I would drink more of this. But you took this bottle, didn't you, Brian, or did you leave that bottle here? No, I took it, Sam. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> and the only mailbox I get around here is from uh, Imagery, oh. and they do a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah it's totally uh, – it's just like um, um, Zinfandel here and people who grow Zinfandel in another country, it's not the same. Right. And the Malbecs here are, are not the same as the Malbecs from Argentina. Totally. And, and you guys, I know we mentioned the uh, wine spectator. So the wine was Bodega Piedra Negra, their 2015 oh, yeah. Chacayas, Los Chacayas, uh, 3,000 cases made, 100% Malbec, uh, organically grown. And 99 bucks. I like the price point. Under 100. Oh, geez. <laughs> that's so that's, uh, I know where that vineyard is. And that's in, uh, that's in a very rocky area. High in, you know, a yeah, higher elevation. Of the and so, yeah, Piedras Negras, Black Rocks. So. And that's from right. um, uh, Francois Lorton. Yeah. So, yeah. They've been up there for quite a while. And they, they make a... Sort of the opposite style of what mine is, because it's 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 a lot of structure, a lot of tannin. It's very tight, uh, very a lot of minerality in that wine. I have to say one thing: your label is very. It communicates really well. It says an awful lot. Well, it, it, You've got it's very um like watercolor. Well, um, Really well, well we're, I was really lucky. Uh, one, one of my friends uh, who's, who lives in Belgium and, and, uh, and uh, is a, a wine um, courtier, and he actually helps uh, place the wine in Europe. He had a friend who's a watercolor artist in Antwerp. And uh, we got together with him for lunch and made a trade that he would uh, do a painting for us, and then uh, and explain to him what the uh, what we were trying to do. So um, um, the the picture of the mountain is the Andes, and that has the greatest climatic influence on on us. And that's also where we get the water from the vineyard. And then um, um, the picture of the man is sort of a tribute to all the Italian immigrants that came to uh, to Argentina and planted the vineyards. And, um, and then there's a, a bottle of wine in, in the vineyard because we want the, the wine to reflect the vineyard. And of course, there's a glass there because we want it to go with food. And so that's what we told him. And that's what he came up with. So it's a, it's a unique watercolor picture. Very cool. I really like it a whole lot. It's, it says a whole lot. It says everything you need to right there. And that's unusual. You know, most of ours are just not this visual, and it's quite nice. Well, and he's he's a well-known watercolor artist, so we were very, very lucky to have him do that for us. Well, that's awesome, Ray. Thank you very much for being for being a guest on the show. Um, uh, we hope some people that listen to the show will be able to um, uh, uh, find some of your wines and give them a try. 
Um, if, and, and Ray, if you'd like, I'd like, I'd love to have you stay on the line for this. We, we've started answering some questions from some of our listeners and, um, uh, uh Robert French, um, had sent me an email after, um, our last, uh, series of questions that I wanted to kind of address. And, and basically what he's was saying is when the last time we talked about how, um, you could go to Bottle Barn and, and the amazing pricing um, that they have there. And um, he likes to support the wineries, um, you know, uh, directly. Um, uh, but, you know, and, and he does a great job doing that. But, you know, he also um, kind of wishes that he uh, could get the same pricing as what, you know, someone who's not as dedicated to the winery uh, from the store. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, speaking of bottle barn which we were speaking about last time it, it, a lot of that has to do with the fact of the sure amount of wine that bottle barn buys um uh that allows them to get that pricing um and 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 then the other thing to understand is um wineries small wineries that have brokers or distributors they're not in control of where their wines are sold and they're really not necessarily that in control of um how much the wines are sold to those stores for. Um, you know, they're sold to the broker or the distributor, and then um, that is marked up. And the broker or distributor has the ability to discount um, as they want. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of the reason for where, where you'll see pricing in stores, um, you know, lower. Um, right? Well, what and what I would say, too, is that a lot of times Bottle Barn is getting me the introduction. So they're making the introduction to that particular winemaker or winery where, you know, typically I'm picking up something at Bottle Barn where that's the only product, the only skew that they have from that winery is that one wine. And so then I'm getting introduced to it. And then I can make a determination of, oh, I really like this wine. I like the style of winemaking. Now I will reach out to the winery buy some wines online or go visit them. Um, so, so I don't know. I'm, I agree. I think I see some wines sold there that, you know, the prices are definitely lower than you see at the winery and, and everyone likes to go direct, but sometimes, you know, you kind of chalk it up to marketing. Yeah. I, I know, you know, when I was first learning about it, I know my uh, John Sheila from Kenwood used to always say, um, the most expensive place the wine should ever be is in your own tasting room. And, and his philosophy at the time was, you know, that Safeway and um, all of their distributors can sell a lot more wine out of the out of direct, uh, sell a lot more wine than the winery could sell it in the tasting room. So they never wanted to be undercutting all of their retailers. Um, and and, and that, um, that model has changed a lot because now wineries see these huge amount of people um, coming uh, to visit them. Um, so it, it's, it, it's, it's a good question, um, Robert. Um, and I don't know that we answered it, but there's just some more thinking points for you. John, Ray, you guys have any thoughts on that? No, it's, uh, I think you pretty much covered it. Uh, um, you don't, and also it has a lot to do with the size of a winery. Right. And, and, uh, you know, if you have a lot of volume, you need to sell it and so you can offer deals. If you've got a limited production, um, 
and you're selling, then you're not going to find deals. Right. Yeah. Well, great. Um, any shout outs, Brian? Uh, I don't <laughs> It's a Wednesday. Don't worry about it, Brian. It's all okay. <laughs> like I showed up late and left early. I'm, uh, yeah. But I, well, I can tell you, I, I really enjoy this wine, Ray. And I appreciate um, the opportunity to try it. Great. I'm glad, uh, glad you appreciate it. Yeah. I think, um, like, like Sam was saying, I don't get an opportunity to drink a lot of Malbec, and it's because I, I drink a lot of local wines. And so it's nice to get turned on to something um, from the actual country of origin, um, uh, you know, one of these older vine things. And when I first tasted the wine, um, it tasted way different than it's tasting now, a half an hour, 45 minutes um, later. And it's, it's just gotten more beautiful as the uh, time has passed. Great. Uh, evolution in the glass is a, says, says that the wine's got something going for it. Yeah, for sure. It really does. Congrats. It's a great product. Believe me. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you, Ray, for being on the show. Uh, we really look forward um, to uh, uh, seeing everybody next week. Um, Stay safe, wear your mask, um, love one another, you know, let's all be nice. We only have a few more weeks of this year left. Let's um, end right. on a high, not a low. So, yeah, positive, <laughs> positive note. Okay, well, ha happy new year to all and uh, good drinking and good eating. Cheers. All right, okay. cheers, guys. Bye. Ciao.